This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. Senator Joe Manchin, of course, abruptly pulled the plug this week on the Democrats. No, Martha, he didn't abruptly. Martha, Martha, he abruptly on Friday. He didn't abruptly do anything. He was he sabotaged the president's agenda. No. Uh, Look, if you check the record six months ago, I made it clear that you have people like Manchin, Sinema to a lesser degree, who are intentionally sabotaging the president's agenda, what the American people want, what a majority of us in the Democratic caucus want. Nothing new about this. And the problem was that we continue to talk to Manchin like he was serious. He was not. This is a guy who is a major recipient of fossil fuel money, a guy who has received campaign contributions from 25 Republican billionaires. You okay, think this guy but, uh, is serious? Senator, I no. want, I, uh, okay, you say he wasn't serious, but Manchin says his main goal is to do what's good for West Virginia, and he's worried about inflation. Listen to what he told really, the West Virginia really? radio station. Listen to this, please. Is that right? Inflation is absolutely killing many, many people. They can't buy gasoline. They have a hard time buying groceries. Everything they buy and consume for their daily lives is a hardship to them. Your reaction to that, Senator? Look, the same nonsense the mansion has been talking about for a year. West Virginia, it's a beautiful state. I've had the pleasure of being there. Great people. It is one of the poorest states in this country. You ask the people of West Virginia whether they want to expand Medicare to cover dental, hearing, and eyeglasses. You ask the people of West Virginia whether we should demand that the wealthiest people in large corporations start paying their fair share of taxes. Ask the people of West Virginia whether or not all people should have health care as a human right like in every other country on earth. That's what they will say. In my humble opinion, you know, Manchin represents the very wealthiest people in this country, not working families in West Virginia or America. That was Senator Bernie Sanders condemning Joe Manchin for what he is, a saboteur. This is not a good faith actor, and it is long past time for the Democratic Party to stop treating him as if he's a good faith actor who's just really looking out for the needs of his constituents. And he keeps tanking climate legislation or anything with regard to climate change or environmental issues because he's worried about inflation. He doesn't care. So it's time to stop pretending as if this is a good faith actor. And that's what Bernie Sanders is speaking to here. This is somebody who is a saboteur. Now, if you've watched this program for a while, I've talked about how Manchin has used his political career to financially benefit his coal company and also how his ties to the fossil fuel industry, more broadly speaking, are extensive. So it's not like this connection to the fossil fuel industry is some obscure fact. It is now public knowledge. Even mainstream media has extensively detailed the way that he has used his political career to benefit not just the fossil fuel industry, but his coal company so it's time for the democratic party to take action and punish him because just letting mansion be mansion 
has been a colossal failure. And that's what Ilhan Omar said in an interview on MSNBC. She said it's time for the Democratic Party leadership to take action. Here's what she said. And it's really disappointing, not surprising. We knew uh, when the Build Back Better agenda uh, was decoupled uh, that this was ultimately going to happen. I don't know uh, why Senator, um, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer still allows for Manchin to be the chair of the Energy uh, Committee. I don't know why our party hasn't decided um, to, you know, make the case uh, and pressure Manchin to do the right thing in advancing the Democratic agenda and the president's agenda. Uh, I think we ultimately have to come to terms that what we are doing at the moment and the way that we are dealing with Manchin isn't working in advancing the democratic agenda and the president's agenda. Uh, and so we must change course. She's absolutely correct. It's time for people to stop looking at Manchin exclusively and also start directing their ire at the Democratic Party's leaders because they have done nothing to rein in rogue members of their caucus. Chuck Schumer is the Senate's majority leader. Why is he allowing a modern-day coal baron to serve as the chair of the Senate Energy Committee? I mean, there's kind of a conflict of interest there. No, he is a coal baron. His family owns a coal company. Throughout his career, even when he was a state senator in West Virginia and governor, he done he did everything in his power to make sure that that company was benefited by his policies. And yet he serves as the chair of the Senate Energy Committee? Why is Chuck Schumer allowing this to happen? More importantly, why has the President of the United States not publicly condemned Manchin even a single time? He'll vaguely refer to two votes that he's missing in the Senate, but as President, you can use your bully pulpit to exert maximum pressure. I mean, you've tried just letting Manchin do his thing, treating him as if he is a good faith actor and that has failed colossally. So now it's time for people to start directing their ire at Biden and members of the Democratic Party establishment who refuse to rein in Joe Manchin. And just to give you a sense of how self-serving this politician is, Manchin has taken steps actually to protect the environment. It's just the environment where his uh, mansion is located. As Daniel Boguslav, The Intercept writes, while Manchin has sabotaged federal efforts at combating climate change, he has used federal dollars to preserve his own corner of the world. Public records reviewed by The Intercept show that even after Manchin's decades-long efforts to upend environmental policy that would undercut the fossil fuel company's funding, his political campaigns, and the waste coal industry generating his personal fortune, he and his wife Gail Manchin have directed millions of federal dollars to a small pristine valley in West Virginia, where the couple owns a condo, hundreds of miles north of the coal communities decimated by the mountaintop removal mining that Manchin fostered in the state, the Manchin's Canaan Valley residence sits in an unadulterated watershed surrounded by the Dolly Sods Wilderness, the Canaan Valley National Wildlife Refuge, and Blackwater Falls State Park. The couple purchased the condo in Davis, West Virginia in 2011, according to the deed. In 2018, Manchin used his spot on the powerful Senate Appropriations Committee to secure $7 million to rebuild the visitor center at the Canaan Valley National Wildlife Refuge, less than a mile from his condo. So he cares about the environment. It's just the environment where his condo is, not the planet that we all live on. Because when it comes to the habitability of our planet, Joe Manchin is old, so he's not going to see the worst of what climate change has to offer. So, so long as the environment around him is protected, then he's okay with that. So this is the type of person who we're dealing with. He is 
the textbook example of a bad faith actor and the Democratic Party establishment has done nothing to rein him in. They're too busy condemning progressives and trying to stop progressives from winning primary campaigns against incumbent corporate Democrats. So, yes, it is true that everything that Bernie Sanders is saying here is accurate about Joe Manchin, but it is time for the president to understand that if he does not act, the failure is on him, not on Manchin. When you look back at the history book, sure, Manchin is going to have a role here, but ultimately this is going to be a failure of the Biden administration. And so one criticism that I have of Bernie Sanders and Ilhan Omar is that as much as it's evident that Joe Biden is too afraid to criticize Manchin, progressives have got to stop being uh, too afraid to criticize Joe Biden. Call out Joe Biden. Call on him to do more. Now, thankfully, Ilhan Omar did that there, but Bernie Sanders has been really reluctant to criticize Joe Biden, and maybe that's because he feels as if if he has the president's ear, then he can influence him in a positive direction. But I'm sorry, Bernie, that's been a demonstrable failure. So now it is time to condemn Biden for not exerting pressure on Manchin. Biden could threaten to fire his wife, Manchin's wife, who he gave a job to. Biden could threaten to use the DOJ to investigate Manchin's daughter, who was involved in a price-fixing scheme regarding EpiPen when she was a big pharmaceutical CEO. There are things that Biden can do, extraordinary measures that Biden can take, but at a minimum, just name and shame him. Do you think that Donald Trump, when he was president, would allow just two senators to destroy his entire agenda whenever they were blocking, whenever Lisa Murkowski or Susan Collins were holding up Trump's agenda, he condemned them. He condemned people who he called rhinos. It's time for Biden to stop sitting idly by and letting people like Manchin dictate his presidency. But you, you see, the thing about this is Biden is not calling out Joe Manchin because I think that deep down he agrees with Manchin. I mean, actions speak louder than words. So if you just let somebody dictate the terms of your presidency, let somebody dictate what you claim is your agenda, then I'm sorry, you're complicit in that. So this is where we're at. Bernie Sanders and Ilhan Omar are absolutely correct, but nothing is going to change. Manchin will continue to sabotage the Democratic Party's agenda purposefully so until the Democratic Party itself, its leaders, takes action to rein in Joe Manchin. In his Senate race against Dr. Oz, John Fetterman has constructed a robust policy platform that's substantive and specifically addresses the needs of the working class in Pennsylvania, so he's absolutely, without question, won the policy war. But another war that he's winning is the meme war, which is important in 2022 American politics. So for those of you who haven't been following John Fetterman on Twitter, he has been trolling the hell out of Dr. Oz, and it is hilarious because he is relentless. For example, he made fun of this cringeworthy ad that Dr. Oz released during the GOP primary where he claims, quote, I've been shooting and hunting my whole life and nobody believed him. And, you know, John Fetterman spoke to this saying, we totally believed you, dude. Now, also, he responded to a tweet from Dr. Oz where he's seen with business owners from Pennsylvania, Pat and Gino, and John Fetterman essentially calls him a carpetbagger, which he is, by the way, saying, ah, yes, the trip to Pat's and Gino's, a right of passage for every tourist. And that's just what he did this past week. We haven't really even scratched the surface. I've done videos about this, so if you want to watch more videos, you could check our back catalog. But basically, Dr. Oz realized that he's getting dunked on ruthlessly, and he's got to respond somehow. But the problem is, and I've said this before, Dr. Oz is essentially the Republican equivalent of Hillary Clinton. Too elitist, too out of touch, whenever he tries to appear personable and relatable, it comes off as cringeworthy and awkward. So, you know, 
it's difficult for him to try to meme because he doesn't know what dank memes the peasants like. Uh, but regardless, you can't just seed John Fetterman ground in the meme war. You've got to participate, right? So regardless, Dr. Oz has tried to, you know, post a couple of dank memes himself. Um, and it didn't go too well. So, for example, he posted a gif of Zach Galifianakis with the caption, John Fetterman calculating how he will push the Commonwealth towards socialism, but realizing that's not what Pennsylvanians need or want. Now, as you can see, he got ratioed into oblivion for this extremely stupid tweet, and people in the replies were shitting on him. In another tweet, Dr. Oz writes, Friday fact, John Fetterman will befriend Bernie Sanders in the Senate. He will follow Bernie's lead and be his sidekick. Pennsylvania and America cannot afford to have a another Bernie in the Senate. Now, not only did he get ratioed again, but people pointed out how he himself befriended Bernie Sanders when he brought Bernie Sanders on his show. So on one hand, you can't just ignore the meme battle that's being waged because it's hilarious and it's making you look like a clown. But when he tries to respond, it doesn't go well. And, and this is somebody who has millions of followers on Twitter. And for all of the tweets that he gets ratioed in, it, like this shouldn't happen when you have that many fans, apparently. But regardless, you know, what he's putting down, people aren't picking up. But John Fetterman, I think, has definitively won the meme war by doing something that is so creative that I've never seen a politician do before. He booked a cameo from Snooki of the Jersey Shore and had her send Dr. Oz a message. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with cameo, Basically, this is a service where you can pay a celebrity to send a message to someone. You could either have them tell somebody happy birthday, send them well wishes, good luck, congratulations, whatever you want. Now, Snooki charges $300, so John Fetterman enlisted her to send a video to Dr. Oz. And I've got to say, this was A+. Take a look. Hey, Maymet, this is Nicole Snooki. Um, and I'm from Jersey Shore. I don't know if you've seen of it before. Um, but I'm a hot mess on a reality show, basically, and I enjoy life. Um, but I heard that you moved from New Jersey to Pennsylvania to look for a new job. And personally, I don't know why anyone would want to leave Jersey because it's like the best place ever and we're all hot messes. Um, but I want to say best of luck to you. I know you're away from home and you're in a new place, but Jersey will not forget you. I just want to let you know. I I will not forget you. Um, and don't worry, because you'll be back home in Jersey soon. This is only temporary. So good luck. You got this. And Jersey loves you. <laughs> now, um, this is a couple of days old now, so I'm assuming most of you have seen this. I've watched it so many times, and every single time, it's just... It is perfect. So there's certain things that you could put in your request and the line that John Fetterman's team included of uh, how this is just temporary and you'll be back in Jersey soon. Just brilliant. Chef's kiss. Absolutely brilliant. So listen, I think that with the way that campaigns have evolved in the United States, they've evolved in some bad ways where you have to raise a lot of money in order to win. But they've also became a lot more informal in large part thanks to individuals like Bernie Sanders and even Donald Trump who don't take themselves too seriously, don't come off as polished politicians. So as a result, campaigns have kind of gotten a lot more stupid, but in some ways they've improved in the sense that they've gotten more fun. Candidates oftentimes don't take themselves 
as seriously. You you absolutely must offer policy substance and have a good platform, but at the same time, you can have fun and shit on your opponent if they are a terrible opponent. And that's what John Fetterman is doing, and I think that this is helping him. And see, a lot of the things that get people won over, just normal people, you know, won over is humor. And, you know, this is one thing that um, over the years, the alt-right and anti-SJW YouTubers have done to radicalize a lot of young people. They post memes, and these memes are terrible. They're oftentimes racist, anti-Semitic, homophobic, whatever. But they use humor. Even if it's horrible humor, that's kind of what lures people in. So I think that the left has got to emulate that strategy, albeit in our own way, and use humor as a way to pull in normal people. Use humor to let people know that we're not this caricature that the right likes to portray us as. We have fun, too. We mean we shit on people, and we're pretty ruthless if you've been following leftists for a long time. So I think that John Fetterman is creating a blueprint for campaigns, not just when it comes to policy, because that's number one. But when it comes to just having fun and shitting on your opponent, letting people know in a really clever and unique way how out of touch these elitist politicians are. And, you know, with Dr. Oz, John Fetterman kind of has an easy target in him, but I do think that people, leftists in particular, who are running these campaigns have to do the same thing in general elections and also against incumbent Democrats when they're running these primary campaigns. Don't be afraid to hit below the belt from time to time, use memes to demonstrate, you know, a point. I think that this is important. I, I hate the overly rehearsed, overly focused group tested, you know, slogans that politicians come up with that stuff. Uh, it just drives me nuts. It feels so disingenuous, so inauthentic. Don't be afraid to be yourself in these campaigns. We can use humor. We can use more than just policy to win people over. And John Fetterman is proving that this is a winning strategy. Now, the election isn't over yet, but currently he's in the lead. And I think that he's running an excellent campaign. And he's proving that Dr. Oz doesn't know what he's doing. He's out of touch. He can't relate to people. And in an inadvertent way, this is what the meme war is proving, that Dr. Oz is in above his head, and he's not like you and I. He's an out-of-touch, rich multimillionaire, and he doesn't know what you're dealing with. He doesn't know what makes you tick. He doesn't know what makes you laugh. And that's why he can't be your senator, because he doesn't know what you need, more importantly. So look, Obergefell like Roe versus Wade, ignored two centuries of our nation's history. Marriage was always an issue that was left to the states. Uh, we saw states before Obergefell that were moving. Some states were moving to allow gay marriage. Other states were uh, moving to allow uh, civil partnerships. There, there were different standards that the states were adopting. And had the court not ruled in Obergefell, the democratic process would have continued to operate, that if you believed gay marriage was a good idea, the way the Constitution set up for you to advance that position is convince your fellow citizens. And if you succeeded in convincing your fellow citizens, then your state would change the laws to reflect those views. Uh, in Obergefell, the court said, no, we know better than you guys do. And now every state must uh, must sanction and, and permit gay marriage. Um, I think that decision was clearly wrong when it was decided. Um, it was the court overreaching. Whether the court will reverse it, I, I will say, so in Dobbs, what the Supreme Court said 
is Roe is different because it's the only one of the cases that involves the taking of a human life, and that's qualitatively different. I agree with that proposition. That was Senator Ted Cancun-Cruz on his YouTube show suggesting that the Supreme Court should indeed overturn Obergfell v. Hodges, which, for those of you who don't know, is the landmark 2015 Supreme Court case that said states are not allowed to ban same-sex marriages. Now, he's right to point out that in his majority opinion, Alito claimed that the precedent from the Dobbs case where they overturned Roe v. Wade was constrained to the issue of abortion. The problem is that that was nothing more than a transparent attempt to placate people who were rightfully concerned that the Supreme Court would take a hatchet to other civil rights that we fought for and won. Now, in his concurring opinion, Thomas was actually pretty honest, and he said, in future cases, we should reconsider all of this court's substantive due process precedents, including Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergfeld, which, by the way, is contraception, gay intimacy, and marriage equality, respectively. And he adds, because any substantive due process decision is demonstrably erroneous, we have a duty to correct the error established in those precedents. In other words, contraception, gay intimacy, and gay marriages, these were not rights that were explicitly enumerated in the Constitution. They were essentially found within the Due Process Clause. And since we were able to strike down abortion as a constitutional right, since that too was not explicitly enumerated in the Constitution, then it logically follows that we should also be able to do the same to contraception, gay intimacy, and marriage equality. So Ted Cruz is wrong here, and I think that what he's trying to do is stagger the outrage. Now, what I mean by that is, you know, if everyone finds out that not only are they losing the right to an abortion, but contraception, marriage equality all at once, that might be too much outrage. It might destabilize the country. But if you kind of let people know that they no longer have the right to an abortion, and then you wait a year or two, and then you take away another civil right, then perhaps the anger from the last issue will have died down. And, you know, you, you kind of just give them a drip feed of losing civil rights and civil liberties, and that's kind of the way to maintain social order, I think. But Ted Cruz is saying here, I don't think that the Supreme Court's going to do this, but in actuality, he knows that this is indeed what they're going to do. They will overturn marriage equality, and that's what he wants them to do. Now, he wrongly stated that marriage was always an issue left to the states until Obergfell v. Hodges, but he's leaving out a really important case that disproves what he's saying. Loving v. Virginia. That was the landmark Supreme Court ruling that uh, established the right to interracial marriages. Yeah, that's also not a right explicitly enumerated in the Constitution. But, you know, ironically, Clarence Thomas didn't want to revisit that one because he himself is in an interracial marriage. But Ted Cruz is wrong to say, oh, well, marriage was always something that was left up to the states. Actually, no. The Supreme Court stated you were not allowed to ban marriages and deny couples marriage licenses on the basis of race. And because of Loving v. Virginia, the Supreme Court applied that same rationale to Obergfeld to find that states also cannot deny marriage licenses on the basis of sex or sexual orientation or gender identity. Now, according to data from the U.S. Census Bureau, there are currently 543,000 married same-sex couples and another 469,000 same-sex couples who may one day choose to get married. Now, if those hundreds of thousands of marriages are abolished, they lose access to a plethora of federal benefits, including tax incentives social security, immigration benefits, federal employment benefits like health care. I mean, the list goes on. So the federal government has and always will be inextricably linked to marriages because without the federal government, we couldn't get these federal benefits as a result of our marriages. There are state and federal benefits. So Ted Cruz, he knows this. 
This is somebody who went to law school, but he's being purposefully deceitful here because he wants to make it seem as if like abortion, marriage equality is another state's rights issue. You know, you can have certain states have marriage equality. That's fine, according to Ted Cruz. But, you know, if a state wants to ban it, that's fine. Now, what's interesting is that in his state, you know that they would be a state that would indeed ban marriage equality. They want to ban gay intimacy. Lawrence v. Texas, that stemmed from a law in Texas that banned gay couples from being intimate. But what's really disgusting and shows how craven Ted Cruz is, is that he wants to take away a crucial civil right from his own daughter. Because yes, Ted Cruz's daughter recently came out as bisexual and stated that she disagrees with her far-right father. So imagine being so craven that for political purposes, you vocalize your desire to see a case that won a crucial civil right for your daughter overturned. That is despicable. You'd fuck over your own flesh and blood just so that way you can score cheap political points. That's Ted Cruz. That's who Ted Cruz is, a despicable individual. Now, I don't think I've ever said anything nice about the British monarchy on this program, but Prince Harry, he spoke before the UN and he, um, and this was on Nelson Mandela Day, and he said something really, really important about what we're seeing globally, a trend towards authoritarianism, and he name-dropped the United States specifically for taking away civil rights. Let's watch. How many of us feel battered, helpless, in the face of the seemingly endless stream of disasters and devastation? I understand. This has been a painful year in a painful decade. We're living through a pandemic that continues to ravage communities in every corner of the globe. Climate change wreaking havoc on our planet, with the most vulnerable suffering most of all. The few weaponizing lies and disinformation at the expense of the many. And from the horrific war in Ukraine to the rolling back of constitutional rights here in the United States, we are witnessing a global assault on democracy and freedom. And that right there is exactly how this should be characterized. The GOP is waging an all-out assault, not just on democracy, but freedom. It's not just about gay intimacy. It's not just about same-sex marriages. It is about freedom. You see some states trying to ban gender-affirming care for trans youth. And we're talking about just letting children socially transition if their parents allow that so they want to restrict the way that people express themselves that's a first amendment right gender expression falls under the first amendment we're seeing very popular far-right pundits like jordan peterson and matt walsh say that they don't believe trans people even trans adults should be allowed to transition they shouldn't be allowed the freedom to transition Live and let live? No, we wanna control what people do with their bodies, how they express themselves. You have rising stars in the GOP, fascists like Ron DeSantis banning books, citing critical race theory. So we are seeing an all out assault on freedom. And this is happening in the broader context of an assault on democracy. It's not just civil rights and civil liberties being rolled back by the GOP, but we're seeing the decline of democracy because of lies spread about the election with Donald Trump and the Trump wing of the Republican Party, and even the Supreme Court with Moore v. Harper. That's a case that I've talked about that could be the end of democracy in the United States. And it's not like we have a functioning democracy to begin with, but what's left of it goes the way of the dodo if the Supreme Court affirms the legitimacy of independent state legislature theory. I've done a video on that. I'm not going to talk about that here, but we are witnessing an all-out assault on civil rights and freedom. And the GOP are the ones that are waging this war 
on our freedoms. So any person till this day that supports the GOP as they wage a war on freedom, take that as an attack on your civil rights, on your civil liberties, and confront them about this. Correct them about this. Get them to understand that this doesn't just mean that gay people and people who want to have abortions are losing their rights. They're going to lose their rights too. It's not just minorities and marginalized people who lose their rights. Everyone loses their rights as democracy declines. So this is really um, despicable. And people like Ted Cruz, who know better, are choosing to go along with the death of our democracy, with the decline of civil rights, even if he has a daughter who this is going to impact in a negative way. It's truly despicable, but this is the modern GOP, where they put their own careers and political ambitions above civil rights, basic human rights. It's despicable, but this is what we've come to expect. Ted Cruz isn't the first person to do this in the GOP, and he's certainly not going to be the last person to do this in the GOP, even if he's fucking over his own family. She's a house member, yeah. House leader? Yeah. No, she's a member of the house. You just watched Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez be arrested at a Capitol protest for abortion rights. Now, she wasn't the only lawmaker arrested because there were others. As journalist Edward Isaac Dover points out, other members of Congress who were arrested during the protest include Carolyn Maloney, Rashida Tlaib, Cori Bush, Barbara Lee, Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, among others. And as CBS News explains, U.S. Capitol Police said they made a total of 35 arrests for crowding, obstructing, or incommoding, which included 17 members of Congress. Protesters had perched themselves on 1st Street Northeast near the Capitol building, blocking the street. Capitol Police said they issued their standard three warnings before beginning the arrests. A spokesperson for Democratic Representative Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts also confirmed multiple arrests of members of Congress and said Presley was among those arrested. Presley's communications director, Ricardo Sanchez, said her arrest was an act of nonviolent civil disobedience. Representative Catherine Clark, the Democratic Assistant Speaker of the House, was also arrested. Abortion rights supporters and those opposed to abortion rights have been demonstrating near the Supreme Court since the court's decision to strike down abortion protection under Roe nearly a month ago. So what this is, is members of Congress standing in solidarity with abortion rights protesters across the country. And this is really important. Is it just symbolic? Yeah. Is it admittedly political theater? Yeah, but it's important. The House did its job to codify Roe v. Wade, so now it's up to the Senate to do its job. And for that, you have to rely on Democratic Party leadership, Joe Biden, the media. But what members of the House can do, meanwhile, is they can elevate this issue, raise the salience of this particular issue, keep it elevated in the public's minds, so that way this issue doesn't begin to fade away. And I think it's really important for members of Congress to put their bodies on the line and subject themselves to arrest when most members of Congress, I'd argue, don't even care about any issue enough to speak up, let alone subject themselves to being arrested. So this is really important, and I commend everyone who did this. It's not often that we see members of Congress do this and get arrested symbolically, but it still is really nice to see whenever it does indeed happen. Now, on the subject of getting arrested, I've got to share this banger of a tweet from Carolyn Bueno, who writes, It's quite telling that more members of Congress were arrested today for protesting in support of abortion rights than have been arrested ever for facilitating January 6th. 
And that, my friends, is an incredible point. So um, I absolutely commend the members of Congress who did this. Again, it's symbolic, it's political theater, but it's important, it's necessary, and this type of political theater is effective because you generate press coverage, and that's exactly what these members of Congress did. But a dumber element of the story that I have to talk about is the claim that um, AOC either pretended to be arrested or faked being in handcuffs. And this is being spread by a lot of right-wing commentators, along with members of Congress. Speaking of insurrectionists, Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted out to AOC specifically, quote, you faked being handcuffed for your photo op today as Capitol Police warned you three times to get out of the street. Then you were arrested so you would stop playing in traffic. Abortion is legal up to 24 weeks in Minnesota. You're protesting nothing. You're a liar. You also have GOP figures like Terrence Williams and Steven Crowder sharing a video where AOC is ostensibly pretending to be handcuffed. Now, this accusation is also being lobbed at Ilhan Omar as well, but there's a very simple explanation for this. But uh, for um, clarity's sake, let's let's see the video that they're all referring to. Now, towards the end of that last video there, you can see Ilhan Omar, like AOC, raising her fist in solidarity. Now, uh, conservatives are claiming that they were faking being in handcuffs. Except the explanation is that they were not faking being in handcuffs. Let me ask you this. If somebody wanted to pretend as if they were in handcuffs, would they literally raise their fucking fist in solidarity? Did they forget? And they were like, oh, oh, sorry, I forgot. I'm supposed to be pretending to be handcuffed. Is that really what happened? Not just with AOC, but with Ilhan Omar and also Andy Levin, who raised his fist in solidarity as well while trying to keep his hands behind his back for the most part. Is that really what you think is happening? That they were faking being in handcuffs? What's the more likely explanation? They weren't handcuffs and officers just told them to keep their hands behind their backs, knowing that this was a symbolic protest and they complied. Now, there's also um, some conspiracy mongers who are claiming that they weren't actually arrested, but you saw the video, they were being arrested. So I just feel like this is nothing more than another transparent attempt by conservatives to distract you from the substance. They don't want you to talk about abortion rights because they lose on this particular issue because the American people disagree with them. So what they do is they distract, they concoct conspiracy theories. So we focus on that rather than the substance, rather than the message that these members of Congress are actually trying to spread. And it's funny that they always fixate on AOC and Ilhan Omar, but not necessarily other members of Congress like Andy Levin, probably because AOC and Ilhan Omar are members of Congress who are the most effective messengers. But this is like the go-to in the GOP playbook, right? When we learned about the leaked draft opinion for Dobbs, conservatives weren't talking about abortion. They were feigning outrage over the leak itself. So this is what they like to do. Distract, but don't buy into it. We don't have to play their games. Talk about the substance. Don't let the message be lost. What these members of Congress are doing is they're talking about the importance of women controlling their own bodies, women having the right 
to reproductive health care. And members of Congress, GOP propagandists can try to distract, but they only make themselves look dumber. Like if you genuinely believe that they were faking being in handcuffs while they simultaneously raised their fists in solidarity, that doesn't say anything about AOC. It speaks to you and your intelligence level and how fucking stupid and dense you are. So these members of Congress are doing an important thing by keeping this elevated, keeping this high in the public's minds because this matters. As Americans watch and try to process the information that's coming out of the January 6th public hearings, one question that is obviously on all of our minds is, is this going to amount to anything? Will there be any accountability after they've exposed so much criminality from Donald Trump, including witness tampering just from a couple of weeks ago? I mean, he's been incredibly brazen. So for Merrick Garland to let him off, to not prosecute him, would feel like a total abdication of his responsibility as attorney general. But will he do it? And today we got a little bit clearer of an indication as to what Merrick Garland will or will not do. And this is based off of a memo that he signed on May 25th. Now, this was a story uh, that was uh, published on MSNBC. Rachel Maddow had a little bit of a breakdown. So here's some snippets from her going over the uh, memo that is really important on her show. Take a look. Uh, this is a document that we have just obtained that has not been published elsewhere. It is from Attorney General Merrick Garland. It is addressed to all Justice Department employees. It is dated May 25th, 2022. So that's about eight weeks ago. But again, we believe the first time this document has been shown to the public. Um, as you can see, it is titled Election Year Sensitivities. Department of Justice employees are entrusted with the authority to enforce the laws of the United States and with the responsibility to do so in a neutral and impartial manner. This is particularly important in an election year now that the 2022 election season is upon us. And as in prior election cycles, I am issuing this memorandum to remind you of the department's existing policies with respect to political activities. And again, this is a memo that is from Attorney General Merrick Garland. It has his signature on the top of it in blue ink. And now get this. Finally... Department employees must also adhere to the additional requirements issued by the Attorney General on February 5th, 2020. February 5th, 2020. Governing the opening of criminal and counterintelligence investigations by the department, including its law enforcement agencies, related to politically sensitive individuals and entities. See Memorandum of Attorney General William Barr, February 5th, 2020. Any questions regarding the scope or requirements of the February 2020 Attorney General's Memorandum should be directed to the Public Integrity section. February 2020, Trump Attorney General Bill Barr put out new guidance over and above what all attorneys general had previously said. And what Bill Barr said in February 2020 was specifically that, you know, in essence, nobody's allowed to investigate anybody connected to a presidential candidate without his permission personally as attorney general. Memos, uh, Barr's memo from February 2020, the language of it specifically, it said, quote, no investigation, including any preliminary investigation, may be opened or initiated by the department or any of its law enforcement agencies of a declared candidate for president or vice president, a presidential campaign, or a senior presidential campaign staff member or advisor, absent prior written approval of the attorney general through the deputy attorney general. Trump Attorney General Bill Barr established that new rule in February 2020. No investigating any declared candidate for president or anybody working for that candidate unless I personally give my permission. 
That new rule was established by Bill Barr when he was working for Donald Trump. Merrick Garland has just formally extended that guidance and told every employee of the Justice Department that it is still in effect. So overall, there are primarily two implications, in my opinion, based on that. The first is that prosecuting Trump isn't necessarily out of the question, per se, for Merrick Garland. It's just that he has to have the final say, and a lot has changed since May 25th when he signed that memo. However, the problem is that he firmly believes that investigating somebody who is seeking political office makes the DOJ appear hyperpartisan, and he doesn't want the Department of Justice to have that perception. Therefore, he doesn't want to investigate people running for office. In other words, if Trump runs for president again, not going to do anything. Sorry, because we don't want to come off as too political. That in and of itself is a political decision, but it's also an act of cowardice. And he's doing this for no good reason. He's following a standard put in place by Bill Barr. Why? I mean, this was put in place specifically to protect Donald Trump. So Merrick Garland has no responsibility or obligation to adhere to that standard. But for whatever reason, he's choosing to do it anyway. Look, if I'm Biden, I'm exerting maximum pressure on Merrick Garland to resign if he doesn't do what's necessary, and that is prosecute Donald Trump. The evidence of criminality is overwhelming. And so if you don't prosecute Donald Trump, then you are literally telling the American people that presidents are above the law. And that standard is so absurd. Try to think of that applying to anyone else. So if you're getting arrested and you just proclaim that you're running for president, no, don't handcuff me. Uh, I'm running for president. Do you think that a cop is going to comply with that? They're going to say, shut the fuck up. And they're going to shove you in their car because that doesn't work with normal people. They don't care. They're not going to think that it's coming off as too political. If you claim that you're running for president and they targeted you because of your political affiliation, that doesn't work on normal people. So why does this work on elites? It's preposterous. Now, the reason why this is an indication that Trump will not face accountability is because he wants to run for president. He's made that incredibly clear. In fact, this article from Rolling Stone was published this week. In recent months, Trump has made clear to associates that legal protections of occupying the Oval Office are front of mind for him for people with knowledge of the situation, tell Rolling Stone. Trump has spoken about how when you are the president of the United States, it is tough for politically motivated prosecutors to get you, says one of the sources who has discussed the issue with Trump this summer. He says when, not if, he is president again, a new Republican administration will put a stop to the Justice Department investigation that he views as the Biden administration working to hit him with criminal charges or even put him and his people in prison. The former president is motivated to announce early, even before Election Day of 2022, in the hopes of clearing the field of primary rivals. But GOP leaders, including some of Trump's closest advisors, don't want him to declare his intentions until after the midterm elections. But as Trump talks about running, the four sources say he's leaving confidants with the impression that as his criminal exposure has increased, so has his focus on the legal protections of the executive branch. So we're in this situation where we have a top presidential candidate for 2024 running again, not necessarily because he has a grand vision for the country or has any policy goals that he wants to execute. He's running because he thinks that if he gets elected, then he'll be above the law. And unfortunately, according to this memo, he may be right about that. Merrick Garland may actually view him as being above the law and because he's seeking office again, 
He's untouchable because don't want to appear too partisan. I mean, this is why nobody respects the United States of America. Its own citizens view this country as having a two-tier justice system where peasants are arrested for committing crimes that elites will never see a day in jail for if they commit it themselves. And we're talking about sedition here. We're talking about inciting an insurrection, tampering with, with witnesses, and all Trump has to do to escape culpability is run for president? I mean, Merrick Garland might actually be one of the worst attorneys general in American history just because of how feckless and shameless he is in trying to cover for Donald Trump. And this isn't the only area where he has continued Trump-era policies, defended Trump cases, or cases that the Trump administration has defended more specifically. But if this is it, you know, where Trump is found to be guilty, potentially, at least in the eyes of the public, after the January 6th hearing exposes all of his crimes, and Merrick Garland just chooses to not do anything with that information, I just don't know how trust can ever be restored in American institutions again. And more importantly, I don't see how Trump doesn't remain in office forever. Because if political leaders see that a leader, a sitting president, can quite literally incite an insurrection and try to steal an election and there's no repercussions whatsoever, well, they're going to do that. Because if you have nothing to lose and you can remain in power in perpetuity, well, some demagogue who wants to be a dictator is going to do that. Maybe it's Donald Trump. Maybe it's Ron DeSantis. Either way, it's coming if there's no accountability for literally trying to steal a fucking election. And Merrick Garland has himself to blame for that. He will be in the history books for being complicit with the downfall of American democracy if he refuses to do the bare minimum. And that is his job in prosecuting criminals. You know, for all this talk about groomers, it seems as if anti-LGBTQ plus bigots are the ones who are more obsessed with trans people's genitalia and what gay people do in the bedroom more than anybody. It seems like they're the ones who are projecting when they call other people perverted because they can't stop talking about and thinking about queer people's sex lives. And that's really bizarre for people who are supposed to be disgusted by LGBTQ plus people. Now, this isn't necessarily a new phenomenon. This has been happening all throughout history. But lately, as we've seen an increase in transphobia and homophobia, bigots have been asking more questions as sort of a gotcha when it comes to the private parts of trans people or the sex lives of gay people, but I don't think that they realize how weird this makes them look. For example, sitting member of Congress, Marjorie Taylor Greene put out this disgusting tweet about US Assistant Secretary for Health, Rachel Levine, saying, we must do everything we can to prevent Dr. Dick Levine's preteen hashtag weenie chop. Very classy for a member of Congress. She adds, now that I think about it, as Dr. Dick Levine advocates for gender-affirming care for minors, has she undergone the weenie chop herself, or is she just pushing this on children? So obviously, she's trying to misgender Rachel Levine here, but this is incredibly vile and disgusting, speculating about somebody else's private parts. I mean, you're a member of Congress. Why do you care about what's between other people's legs? Why are you so hyper-obsessed with trans women? Why don't you get a life, Marjorie Greene, you disgusting fucking piece of shit? Why do you constantly focus on what other people are doing in the privacy of their own homes or what they have between their legs? 
I mean, she thinks that this is actually a gotcha for Dr. Rachel Levine, but really this makes her look like an immature imbecile. And also she's misrepresenting what Dr. Levine said in that short clip that the GOP is freaking out about. Now the RNC also pushed the same lie that Marjorie Taylor Greene pushed, saying Biden Assistant Secretary for Health Rachel Levine says we need to empower kids to go on puberty blockers and get sex reassignment surgery. Now, first of all, I guess I should give them credit for not misgendering Dr. Rachel Levine because that's apparently something that is very difficult for conservatives to uh, not do. but. They're not representing what she said accurately. They're saying that she claims children should get sex reassignment surgery, but that's not what she's saying. Here's what she said in a very short clip that ruffled so many conservative feathers. We really want to to to, to base our treatment and uh, and to uh, affirm and to uh, support and empower these youth, not to limit their participation in activities and sports, and even uh, uh, limit their ability to get gender affirmation treatment in their state. Oh my God, how controversial that somebody would dare to say we should maybe try to empower trans youth rather than demonize them, let them live their lives in the way that they want to. She did not say sex reassignment surgery because that's not something that's offered to minors. What she's referring to is social transition, letting trans youth use their preferred pronouns, letting them express themselves as the gender that they identify with, puberty blockers. But they uh, they hear sex reassignment surgery. That's what they hear. But that's not happening. And they pretend as if U.S. healthcare is so good that sex reassignment surgery for trans people, including trans youth, is available like that as soon as you want it. But we have a healthcare crisis in this country. Even if you're a trans adult, getting sex reassignment surgery, getting bottom surgery, is very difficult. It's very expensive. So you honestly think that it's that easy? Have you had any experience with the American healthcare system at all? You think it's that simple? That if a kid on a Tuesday decides that they're trans, by Thursday they can get sex reassignment surgery? I mean, I'm being hyperbolic here, purposefully so, but what they're saying here is wrong and demonstrably wrong because this is not happening. Now look, I could point to the plethora of studies showing why gender-affirming care for trans youth is medically necessary. I've shared the meta-analysis conducted by the Trevor Project where they review dozens and dozens of studies that prove gender-affirming care not only is medically necessary, but it reduces depression and suicidality, but they just don't care. They would rather have trans youth commit suicide than live as they want because they don't want trans people to exist. So what they wanna do is either force them to live as the gender that they don't identify as or force them to be so miserable that they kill themselves. That's the reality of conservatives in America. These are sick, twisted, perverted people, and this is who they are. Now, Rachel Levine was not the only target of conservatives because a swimmer, Leah Thomas, was on Dave Rubin's radar from The Blaze TV, and he decided to speculate about what is uh, in between her legs as well, because this is something that they always think about, apparently. Here's a tweet from The Blaze. What's going on over at UPenn? UPenn nominates transgender swimmer Leah Thomas as 2022 Woman of the Year. Now, as I say on this topic, I don't mean to be a dick about it, but uh, she is a dude. Uh, Leah Thomas has a penis. We did some research on that. Now I'm going to rip the mic off and walk out. <laughs> Leah Thomas has a penis. That's it. I'm out of here. Um, it's complete nonsense. You could, I suppose, and remember, she, she ranked something like 467th when she was a male. Now she's a female with a penis and she ranks the number one. She's the number one. Doesn't make any sense.
And also, wouldn't the penis bog you down at that point? Like, if you're going to swim as a chick, wouldn't you get rid of the penis just for the ability to get through water faster? Yeah. It's a, oh, it's a propeller. That's funny. That's funny. Man, donuts work with you. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, Dave Rubin is a gay man who is married to another man who is having two children with his husband. So let me ask you this, Dave. How are you having those babies? I mean, two men, this doesn't work. Are you going to push that baby out of your asshole? Is your husband? Are you guys going to breastfeed the baby? That seems really unnatural. Yeah. See, these horrible questions that I'm asking, rhetorically speaking, are the same things that Dave Rubin's conservative friends are asking about him behind his back. The same way that he suggests that Leah Thomas's existence is unnatural is the same thing that conservatives are saying about him and his decision to have two children. Now, Dave Rubin thinks that if he can be a good gay, one of the good queers, and throw trans people under the bus, then perhaps when fascists inevitably take over in the United States, they'll be less inclined to throw him in a blender. But unfortunately, the reason why they view Leah Thomas as unnatural is the same reason why they view you and your husband and your family as unnatural, Dave. Because if you are born a certain way, there are expectations. You have to dress a certain way. You have to be attracted to and date certain people. You have to only engage in sexual intercourse with certain people. So the way that Leah Thomas is unnatural, according to conservatives, is the exact reason why they view you as unnatural, too. Dave Rubin should know this as a gay man, but he's being purposefully obtuse because, again, he wants to be one of the good ones. But nope. Sorry, buddy. Now, it's not just the genitals that conservatives are concerned with. They also are really interested in the sex lives of queer people as well. Matt Walsh of The Daily Wire tweeted out, still waiting for gay men who are having random sex with strangers during the monkeypox outbreak to get lectured and scolded by public health authorities the way that the rest of us did for going to grocery stores and restaurants during COVID. He adds, if we could be expected to give up our regular lives for a year and our kids were expected to give up their education, can't we expect gay men to stop having orgies for a few months? Isn't that a reasonable sacrifice to ask of them? So this is just some classic homophobia where you refer to queer people as overly promiscuous and all that they think about is sex, but really this is projection. Let me ask you this, Matt Walsh, as a straight man, how do you know that so many gay men are attending orgies? And furthermore, why are you thinking about other men attending orgies if you are a straight man? This seems a little bit bizarre. No. And let's be perfectly honest. If Matt Walsh was gay and if that was acceptable in conservative circles and, you know, there were these public health messages asking gay men to stop having orgies, he would be hysterical and scream freedom and refuse to get vaccinated and refuse to change his life at all because that's what these idiots did during COVID where they wouldn't even put a piece of cloth over their faces. So, I mean... I don't know what you're talking about with regard to this inconvenience because conservatives wouldn't do anything. But for you to go out of your way to demonize gay people, you know, it's almost like it harkens back to a time in history when we tried to treat gay people as if they were diseased pariahs. As Lance from the Serps put it, leave it to a sexless theocratic fascist who can't do his own laundry and is obsessed with children's genitals to reignite the gay panic HIV AIDS scare. And he's exactly correct. There's already a lot of conservatives who are talking about monkeypox in the same way that conservatives talked about AIDS 
during the HIV AIDS crisis in the 80s. And, you know, they do this purposefully so to treat gay people as diseased pariahs to be avoided because you don't want them to spread their disease to you. They're nasty, they're promiscuous, and they can't help themselves. They're just constantly having sex and attending orgies. So stay away from them to protect your own health and safety. That's what they're trying to promote. So these conservatives are disgusting and perverted. They are incapable of not thinking about queer people having sex, about what's between the legs of trans people, and it's gross. They're just projecting. In fact, somebody who was supposedly anti-groomer was arrested for child sex abuse. And that's not to say that that issue has general applicability and every single conservative is going to be a pedophile if they feign outrage over grooming. But the obsession over queer people and trans people's genitals is downright bizarre and weird and whenever a conservative talks about what's between the legs of trans women or what gay men are doing in the bedrooms understand that they are sick and they're likely projecting some weird insecurity that they have onto everyone else In a 267 to 157 vote, the House has successfully codified Obergfell v. Hodges, meaning that they voted to make marriage equality the law of the land, secure that as a civil right before the Supreme Court inevitably tries to strike it down. And also, this bill formally repeals the 1996 Defense of Marriage Act signed into law by Bill Clinton. Now, that was actually overturned by the Supreme Court in 2013 in the Windsor case, but what they're doing here is just trying to take steps to make sure that these rights that we've secured through the Supreme Court are actually protected. That's the first reason why this is really important, but the second reason why this is important is for political reasons. We don't necessarily know if this is going to pass in the Senate because of the makeup of the Senate, but still, this is interesting because it's going to force Republicans to show their cards after, for years, they've tactically retreated on the issue of same-sex marriage until basically this year when we saw a resurgence of homophobia. But with 71% of voters now supporting marriage equality, it's no wonder why the GOP was forced to tactically retreat. So with these votes, they've got to take a stand. There's no more being silent on this issue. You have to say, do you or do you not support marriage equality when its popularity is at an all-time high? Now, of the 211 Republicans in the House of Representatives, um... Surprisingly, not all of them voted against codifying Obergfell v. Hodges, but still the numbers aren't great. So less than a quarter of Republicans in the House voted to codify Obergfell v. Hodges, just 47. So look, credit to that 47, and we'll, we'll look at who in particular voted in favor of codifying Obergfell. But for the overwhelming majority of the Republican caucus to take this stand publicly, it goes to show you how out of step this party is with the American public. Now, let's get to some of these names here. In no particular order, this includes Andy Biggs, Lauren Boebert, Mo Brooks, likely closeted homosexual Madison Cawthorn, Dan Crenshaw, Myra Flores, Matt Gates, Louis Gohmert, Paul Gozar, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Jody Heiss, who last week asked if a woman can give birth to a taco, literally. Jim Jordan, Debbie Leshko, I believe this is the woman who recently claimed that she loved her grandchildren so much she would shoot them. So yeah, Leader, Kevin McCarthy, Chip Roy, Steve Scalise, and many, many more. So all of these Republicans 
they're coming out and they're admitting that they are against freedom. I mean, it's 2022. So being gay, being in a same-sex relationship, no longer implies that that couple is definitely going to be Democratic voting. I mean, sure, most of them are, but there's a lot of gay Republicans. Dave Rubin, Glenn Greenwald, for example. So they are looking at their allies and they're saying, even if you go out of your way to defend us at every step of the way, we still refuse to acknowledge your basic humanity. Even if you're a political ally and you do propaganda on our behalf, we still don't think that you should have the freedom to live your life in the way that we live our lives. I mean, even after they made this embarrassing vote, Gay Republicans are still defending them, and they still, these elected officials won't acknowledge their humanity. For example, Glenn Greenwald tweeted out, Yesterday, Gates was one of the House Republicans to vote against codification of Obergefell same-sex marriages. That no vote wasn't due to opposition to marriage equality, sure, Glenn. But to his view, that individual states have always regulated marriage, not the federal government. And as my Twitter mutual Jacqueline points out here in response, find you something that's as important to you as defending Republicans 24-7 is to Glenn Greenwald. Exactly. Now, Glenn's argument is extremely fucking stupid because if you believe that states should have the ability to ban marriage equality, then by definition, you're against marriage equality because if you support it, you believe that that right should be guaranteed regardless of what state you're in. And this isn't a state's rights issue. Marriages are inextricably linked to federal and state governments. And Obergfell v. Hodges and Lovick v. Virginia, these are not cases that just determine whether or not states can or can't ban gay marriages. This was about interstate travel, and we'll, we'll get to that in an article by Ross Story. But still, you see the mental gymnastics. You see the way that Glenn Greenwald is bending over backwards to defend them and they still won't even accept their basic humanity. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene assumed that there was a gay person who was like a fellow QAnon or agreed with everything, thought the insurrection was good, was anti-vax, but just happened to be in a same-sex marriage. Marjorie Greene still, even if that person is a political ally, would vote to overturn their marriage. So this is how anti-freedom these Republicans are, even if their gay allies are craven, like Glenn Greenwald, and would do anything to defend them, even including striking down his own gay marriage. It's just, it's astonishing that in 2022, Republicans are still this shameless. But I've got to give credit, I guess, to the 47 Republicans who did the right thing. In no particular order, these Republicans voted to codify marriage equality. This includes Kat Kamek, Liz Cheney, Tom Emmer, Daryl Issa, Adam Kinzinger, Scott Perry, Elise Stefanik, Jefferson Van Drew, among others. And I know what you're going to say, Mike, we shouldn't have to give these folks credit for doing the bare minimum and just being decent human beings and allowing people the freedom to live. But you've got to understand the bar here in America is very, very, very low. So if a Republican does something that is reasonable, I feel inclined to give them credit. Now, we've talked about the House, but we've got to talk about the Senate because that will ultimately determine the fate of this bill. And it doesn't really look good. You're already seeing some pretty hard no votes. For example, Marco Rubio told CNN's Manu Raju he'll be voting against it and called it a, quote, stupid waste of time. Yeah, I bet that if his marriage was at threat of being abolished, he wouldn't feel that this was a stupid waste of time. But he's a no vote. Another one is so-called populist Josh Hawley. Now, again, we looked at the numbers. 71% of Americans support marriage equality, but this populist Josh Hawley is saying, mm, no, 
don't support it. So as Sarah Ferris of Raw Story explains, Senator Josh Hawley said that he didn't support the marriage equality decision in 2015 when the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage nationwide in the Obergfell v. Hodges decision. According to Hawley, the decision shouldn't have been up to the Supreme Court because marriage is a state's rights issue. What the court addressed at the time is the interstate conflict. The problem with Obergfell is that I don't think there is any constitutional basis for the Supreme Court to say this is what the definition of marriage is according to the Constitution. I don't think the Constitution has marriage in it, Holly told Ross Story. And I think the states traditionally that has been because the definition of marriage that has been a big controversy in this country all around the country and the states have defined it in one way or another and I think that that's the right difference. Senator Marco Rubio agreed with Holly saying that states decide marriages. You can get married in Las Vegas by an Elvis impersonator in two hours. Neither Rubio nor Holly clarified whether they supported the interracial marriage ruling the Supreme Court decided in 1967. In that case, too, the couple was married in an area of the country where interracial marriage was legal. When they moved to Virginia, where it was illegal, they were charged with violating the state's anti-miscegenation statute, found guilty, and sentenced to a year in prison unless they agreed to exile. In both Loving and Obergfell, the Supreme Court justices ruled that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment requires all states to recognize the marriages granted in other states. So because they know that their position against same-sex marriage is unpopular, well, they have to try to cloak their bigotry in some sort of a legal defense. But their legal defense doesn't necessarily make sense unless you also agree that interracial marriages should be left up to the states as well. But they're not willing to go that far. They don't want to say, well, you know, I'm consistent and I support states' rights on the issue of marriage entirely. So yes, that includes interracial marriages. But they don't want to say that. They don't want to say that states should have the power to ban interracial marriages. So they're stuck in this awkward position where they're doing this weird tap dance where they don't want to come off as bigots. But they are, but they also, you know, they want to make a legal justification, but they know that it's pretty murky because if you're against gay marriage for legal reasons, you are going to have to be against interracial marriages if you're consistent. So it's just weird and awkward. And I love watching them squirm. Now, uh, as to whether or not other Republicans in the Senate will support this, you know, there's at least one firm. Yes, but there's also a lot of... Um, awkward tap dances from people who don't really want to say from republicans to be clear who don't want to say their position and they're hoping that this doesn't come up for a vote so raw story continues retiring senator rob portman is a co-sponsor of the senate version of the bill to eliminate the defense of marriage act and codify marriage equality in the national statutes he is one of at least four republicans willing to support the marriage equality bill another is senator lisa murkowski who told reporters i have long been a supporter of equality in marriage but senator mitt romney said that it was a pointless bill because the law isn't changing and there's no indication that it will delusional when ross story asked him about justice clarence thomas opening that door romney said well he's opened a lot of doors that no other judges have walked through senator chuck grassley told reporters asking him about the law that same-sex marriage is quote the law of the land so was roe but roe no longer is ross story said back to him grassley refused to respond we don't know if the bill is coming to the senate said senator john thune in a conversation with abc news's tj holmes so they 
hate that they have to show their cards. They are desperately hoping that this doesn't come up because they know this is another issue that they're going against the American people. They recognize that Roe v. Wade was something that the American people, the overwhelming majority of the American people supported. They're seeing the stories of how women are being forced to carry dead fetuses for two weeks because they're being denied abortions. And so they know that if there's another victory for their side that's unpopular, it could end up undermining them and it could hurt them as the Roe decision now is demonstrably hurting them, at least politically, at this point in time with regard to polls, but they know that this is unpopular. They know that they're on the wrong side of history and against the American people. So they're just trying to say, oh, well, you know, Obergfell, same-sex marriages, that's already the law of the land. Oh, what's that? You think it's going to be overturned? Well, it probably won't, so don't worry about it. They don't want to show their cards, and this is why this is brilliant. Democrats should bring up a bunch of other popular policies and force them to show their cards. Interracial marriage, force them to vote on that. Other things, you know, when it comes to contraception, sodomy, force them to make their positions known because they're very uncomfortable because as dumb as Republicans may seem, they're at least savvy enough to acknowledge when they are or aren't against public opinion. And in these issues, most Americans just don't agree with them. So forcing them to show their cards is really important politics. But on top of that, the substance itself is more important because these rights are under threat and in order to protect them, you have to be proactive and take action to codify them. So all around, I don't know how the Senate vote is going to go. If I had to guess, it's going to fail. But just showing these Republicans or, or watching them show their cards in and of itself has been a victory to me because this is really great to see. I love to see them squirm. Love it. Folks, we need to have a conversation about the Democratic Party and their brilliant strategy to prop up GOP extremists and how that is already backfiring on them. It's already blowing up in their face and it's been a month or so. Now, I don't know if I did a full segment on this, but I certainly referenced this article multiple times. But if you missed it, on June 16th, the New York Times published this article titled Democrats Risky Bet. Aid GOP extremists in spring, hoping to beat them in fall. As Democratic leaders warn loudly of right-wing threats to democracy, their campaign arms are meddling in Republican primaries, betting they can help pick easier opponents in November. Now, as many people People pointed out, myself included, this was a terrible idea because they tried this strategy not too long ago, and it was partially the reason why we got Donald Trump as our president. As Ben Norton of Salon wrote in 2016, how the Hillary Clinton campaign deliberately elevated Donald Trump with its Pied Piper strategy. Now, it's not the first time that that strategy was utilized. Claire McCaskill actually successfully pulled that off in her race against uh, Todd Aiken. I was going to say Clay Aiken, but I think that's a different person. Clay Aiken is the American Idol guy, but it was against Todd Aiken, who was making horrible comments about legitimate rapes and abortion. So, you know, we won't rehash that. I won't rehash the 2002 American Idol race between Clay Aiken and Ruben Stoddard. Really uh, happy that Ruben won. I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, either way, um, you know, it was successful, but it hasn't been successful since, and Democrats are still doing it. So, rather than learn from their mistakes, they decided to run ads like this in support of GOP candidates. Take a look. Again, keep in mind, this is 
a Democratic paid for ad. Same label. So Republicans got to check the ingredients. David Valadeo claims he's Republican. Yet David Valadeo voted to impeach President Trump. Yeah, Valadeo voted to impeach Trump. And Republican Chris Matisse, a true conservative, 100% pro-Trump and proud. Pro-Trump Republican Chris Matisse, military veteran, local businessman, or politician David Valadeo who voted to impeach Trump. Republicans, it's time to decide. House Majority PAC is responsible for the content of this ad. Again, I have to remind you because it's so absurd, that was an ad paid for by the Democratic Party. Now, that's not the candidate who we're going to talk about here. But one candidate in particular who they did fund, well, um, that individual who they thought they could easily beat is now surging. Yeah. So as Politico reports, Democrats boosted a MAGA long shot in the PA governor's race. Now he's got a real shot at winning. State Republicans are coalescing behind Doug Mastriano, despite his perceived shortcomings as a candidate in the pivotal swing state. Now, we'll dive into the article. They'll get to some of these things, but just to give you a sense as to who the Democratic Party funded, Doug Mastriano is someone who is a forced birther to the extremist extent. He doesn't believe in any exceptions, even if it's the life of the mother. He wants to ban all abortions. Um, when it comes to the election, not only is he a 2020 election truther, this individual said that he would send rogue electors to the Electoral College. He would do that as governor to make sure that he could subvert the will of voters in Pennsylvania. So to say that he has shortcomings is a bit of an understatement, but nonetheless, this is who Democrats funded because they thought that they could more easily beat him. Now let's get to the article here. As Holly Otterbein explains, Attorney General Josh Shapiro, the Democratic nominee, is a first-class fundraiser with a record of winning tough statewide races. He emerged unscathed from the Democratic primary after clearing the field. Maestriano, on the other hand, has a shoestring campaign, regularly antagonizes members of his own party, and is known for his far-right views on hot-button issues. He chartered buses to the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, where he appears to have been part of a crowd that crossed barricades. He believes in no exceptions for an abortion ban. He has said that the state legislature has the power to appoint presidential electors, and as governor, he would have the power to decertify election machines. When Maestriano pulled out a win in the primary, many national Republicans kept their distance and privately assumed Shapiro would waltz to the governor's mansion. But as the political environment has worsened for Democrats across the country, the gubernatorial race in Pennsylvania has begun to look more competitive than either party expected. Polls show Maestriano behind Shapiro by only three to four percentage points, which is within the margin of error. So Democrats are fucking clowns. You thought you could easily score this dub, and now he's surging. And Republicans didn't really want to support him because of how extreme he was. And like, imagine just for a second, Republicans are like, we can't support this candidate because they're a little bit too extreme even for us. And now that he's surging, state Republicans are looking at him and they're thinking, hmm, is he really that bad? And they're starting to coalesce around him. Democrats propped this individual up. What do you even say? I mean, even if this strategy were successful and they were able to beat Maestriano, you're still shifting the Overton window to the far, far right. We're talking about candidates who are openly against democracy itself. He's saying we should be able to choose who we want as the president. He embraces independent state legislature theory. And Democrats are like, hmm. We could probably beat them though, so let's let's roll the dice on that one. Let's roll the dice on democracy.
I just, what do you even say? Now, one consultant who was asked about this, the changing dynamic, who supports Shapiro, by the way, um, he's saying, oh, well, it's good that Mastriano is surging because then Democrats will uh, be so afraid of Mastriano that they'll actually get out and vote for Shapiro and make sure that the strategy that we implemented is a success. Like he literally called Mastriano surging a blessing in disguise. Otterbein continues, Larry Seisler, a Pennsylvania-based public affairs consultant who is backing Shapiro, said the early polls are a blessing in disguise because they have made some Democrats realize Mastriano could win. Most people are in a little bubble where they talk to one another and say, boy, there's no way Doug Mastriano can beat Josh Shapiro. Well, you know what? Those people don't get off the turnpike, he said, referring to the interstate highway that crosses Pennsylvania. It wakes some people as to it's a real campaign, and yes, there really are people who are for Doug Mastriano and this is not going to be a walk in the park. In other words, this consultant thinks that it's good that Democratic voters will be so terrified of Doug Mastriano that they will certainly come out to vote. This is gross. Have you ever wondered, uh, what's his name, Seisler, Larry Seisler, consultant guy, have you ever wondered if maybe it'd be preferable that candidates weren't voting out of fear for their lives and instead were voting for someone that inspired them really weighing the differences between two good candidates like have you ever conceived of that scenario instead you're saying no no, no. it's good that these voters are fucking frightened we want them shitting in their pants as they go to the polls because that will guarantee a victory for our shitty milk toast corporate democrat i just it's it's hard to really describe how out of touch and stupid the Democratic Party establishment and their consultants are to fund the far right, shift the, uh, the Overton window, and potentially lose to an extremist who poses a threat to democracy, who is saying, I want to kill democracy, I don't believe in democracy. That's like a new low, even for Democrats. So here we are. It's not a foregone conclusion that Maestriano will beat Shapiro, but in the event he does win, I mean, there should be just universal condemnation of the Democratic Party, but we all know that the media will never condemn corporate Democrats because they are all-knowing and they are benevolent. And it's not that the Democratic Party can fail voters, it's that voters, they fail the Democratic Party. So in the event Maestriano ends up beating Shapiro after Democrats propped him up, the narrative will be, well, you see, Democratic Party voters, they just didn't take this threat to our democracy seriously, and maybe next time they'll pay attention and they'll go to the polls, even if it's getting more difficult to vote in many red states where anti-democracy Republicans are restricting the right to vote. But it's always going to be the voter. The onus will always be on them and never on dumbass Democrats who utilize dumb fucking strategies like this that are demonstrable failures as 2016 has taught us. But here we are. It's already blowing up in their face, and who knows how many far-right Republicans will defeat Democrats after the Democratic Party establishment has propped them up. I genuinely don't know. I hope none of them win. I don't want the Democrats to have this takeaway be that, oh, see, it works when we prop up extremists. But the extremists they're propping up are fucking insane. But that's why they do it, because they know that Democrats will be so afraid to vote, uh, or to not vote, really. So we're in this predicament where... Um, the Democratic Party is enabling the rise of fascism and supporting Republicans as they run to the far right. Unbelievable. 
believe it or not, Donald Trump is starting to lose his vice grip on the Republican Party. And there's a couple of reasons as to why I think this is the case. First is that I think that the January 6th public hearings is more and more seen as a liability. Even if you're a GOP voter and you don't necessarily agree with the content and you still believe that Trump won the election, either way, you've got to make a strategic calculation and determine whether or not his electability has been diminished because these public hearings are hurting him. Another thing that is changing this dynamic in the Republican Party is that there's a new fascist that GOP voters are drawn to, and that individual is obviously Ron DeSantis, and this is reflected in polling as well. For example, DeSantis in Florida now has a 20-point lead over Donald Trump. Now, yes, DeSantis does have the home state advantage here, but in 2016, Trump managed to beat Rubio by nearly 19 points, despite that being Rubio's home state. Now, sure, Rubio is different than DeSantis, DeSantis, but either way, this is still a really huge development. Now, in Michigan, DeSantis is within striking distance of Donald Trump, now polling within the margin of error in this really crucial battleground state. Now, by far and away, at this point in time, Donald Trump still is the GOP favorite in 2024, but that is beginning to change. Now, this is anecdotal evidence, but just the GOP normies that I know in my personal life, they're starting to talk about how more and more they like Ron DeSantis. They like that he is less divisive than Donald Trump. He's a more normal Republican, even if ideologically they're the same, even if the threat that they pose to democracy is about the same, give or take. They are more and more drawn to Ron DeSantis, and even the GOP base who is glued to Fox News is changing their tune as well. So Fox News, at least their digital uh, video thing, their Netflix, whatever that is, they ran a segment where they spoke to GOP voters in Maricopa County, Arizona, and almost all of them, you know, aside from a few exceptions, said they prefer DeSantis to Trump. Take a look. Yes. I don't want him to. I like uh, like what he stands for. I like what he does, but uh, he uh, upset too many people, and he upset him really bad. So I don't think he's good for the party. He needs to get back in. That he already had gained that respect from all the world leaders, and finish what he, you know, started. It's too bad that he did what he did do and was fought the whole way along on darn near everything that he did, but. That's what happened, so I'd like to see him not run. If he did, I would vote for him, but I would not recommend he runs. I, I, I voted for Trump both times, and I, I, I love him. I, I think he was a good candidate, but I think his time has passed. I couldn't care less about uh, President Trump uh, personally. Um, uh, I, I'd prefer somebody different, but if he is the nominee, I'll probably vote for him. You know what, I voted for him for my, my very first time I voted for him. I don't think it'll be best for our country for him to run for re-election. You know, I'm thankful for everything that he's done, but I think that our Republican Party needs to be united. At this point, he's a little too polarizing, and I think that there are candidates out there, Republican candidates, obviously, that um, maybe be able to pull in people that he would lose to be able to change this. I would like to see, you know, Governor DeSantis or someone like that, some some new blood in, in the race. DeSantis, run for president, and if he wants to, then he can pick up Donald as a vice president. We're from Florida. Um, DeSantis is, we're big fans of DeSantis on this one. 
he seems to be a much more common sense and able to communicate better to both sides to get those people back the, the, the switch. He's done a good job at everything he's tried to do, despite all, you know, it's not all just what he says. It doesn't just happen like that. I believe he's done a good job with a lot of things, and that's just my personal belief. I really like DeSantis. I really like DeSantis because I think he can unify the party, and I think he's a fighter and a leader, and we need both. Isn't it like a no-nonsense kind of guy, kind of like Trump is? Um, and I, I really appreciate that. I don't want someone, I don't need a politician to get up there and tell, smile and tell me a couple lies. I'd like to someone that speaks the truth, and I, I really feel like DeSantis would be a good option. 100% uh, DeSantis. Uh, there's no question about it. Well, I'm a, I'm a DeSantis fan as well. Um, Donald Trump had a great run. I thought he was a great president while he was president. After the fact, I think we've seen a lot of div divisiveness that's come from, from things, and I, I Again, I won't. I wouldn't vote for him in a primary, but the policy that he was able to do, I would. I would probably vote for him in an election, but but not a, not a primary. So look, it's not a foregone conclusion yet, but I think that more and more we're seeing that the GOP's base has chosen a new sweaty authoritarian fascist to migrate to. They found a new demagogue, and that individual is Ron DeSantis. Now, what we saw ultimately is that these are loyal Republican voters. They're vote red until they're dead, but during the GOP primary, they are going to make their voice heard, and they're going to opt for Ron DeSantis. But I mean, if Trump wins the primary, they'll go for Donald Trump begrudgingly. But more and more, they're turned off by Donald Trump, maybe not necessarily for personal reasons, but because of the effect that he has on the electorate. So here's some reasons that they vocalized here. Uh, Trump has upset too many people. I mean, sure, he upset more people, but that's kind of always been consistent with Trump. That was part of the reason why they liked him in the first place, I'd argue, but still, he's uh, upset too many people. He wouldn't be able to unite the Republican Party, and that same person who said that said that DeSantis could unite the Republican Party. I tend to agree with that person. Um, he's a little too polarizing. Trump's divisive. I mean, it's it's it feels weird to hear them say this in 2022. Yes, we've seen the insurrection. Yes, we've seen the January 6th public hearings. But you're saying this now when Donald Trump has always been this way. But perhaps there was a breaking point. Maybe January 6th was the straw that broke the camel's back. I've talked to a Republican who said that he was full all aboard the MAGA train until January 6th. Then he ha was a little bit introspective and thought, this is where I'm going to draw the line. And that's that person, at least last time I spoke to them, has kind of migrated towards the left. But, you know, either way, maybe January 6th changed some people's minds. You're going to have a percentage of the GOP base that will never abandon Donald Trump. But more and more, the people who were susceptible to abandoning Trump are jumping off of that train and it's because they have somebody who's more similar to trump but all of the weaknesses that trump has you know that's corrected with ron DeSantis. ron DeSantis is more charismatic than donald trump even if trump is able to entertain people you know i think that in terms of ideology DeSantis can communicate a more cohesive vision of fascism for the gop base and that's why they like him reasons why they like um DeSantis additionally include that he has more crossover appeal, which I think is actually true. You know, we saw with him copying the dictator of Hungary, Viktor Orban, with his Don't Say Gay law. You know, he'll speak out of both sides of his mouth. On one hand, he'll sign legislation that demonizes gay people, but on another hand, he'll say, oh, well, we're going to protect gay people. 
there are enough people, enough normie voters in this country that will fall for that, that will be duped by that and not know. There's normie Democrats in the state of Florida that sided with Ron DeSantis over the Don't Say Gay law because he was able to successfully market that as just, oh, this is about parental rights and education. Now, ignore the fact that when it comes to education, this is the same governor who's banning math books citing critical race theory, but the way that he's able to control the narrative, I think that GOP voters see value in that. And regardless if you love or hate Ron DeSantis, he is effective at doing that, unfortunately. Also, um, he can unify the party. That person said, as I stated earlier, and I think that that's actually accurate. You'll see the um, anti-Trump wing of the party, as small as it may be, the Liz Cheney's, the Adam Kinzinger's of the world come together with the MAGA chuds like Marjorie Green and support Ron DeSantis. So, you know, when it comes to me, I genuinely don't know who is more destructive between Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. Trump certainly is a clear and present danger to democracy, and he would be bold enough to actually just stay in power in perpetuity if he's able to do that after january 6th like once he takes back power he's not going to give that up so that's certainly a problem but ron DeSantis is much much more savvy he doesn't put his foot in his mouth every five minutes he's more covert in implementing his authoritarianism like when he constructs a new fascist institution in florida such as election police to monitor election integrity he is able to sell that in a way to voters that calms their nerves and they don't think, oh, well, this seems a little bit suspicious. She just told us that we had a really safe election and there was no fraud in the state of Florida. So, you know, you're, you're creating this election police unit that you control and seems sus, but I guess you explained it well. Like he's able to have that plausible deniability that Trump just doesn't have but make no mistake about it when it comes to policy i think that ron DeSantis could do more damage but just when it comes to the danger that he poses to democracy you can argue honestly that ron DeSantis is a greater threat to democracy because he's able to sell authoritarianism to voters just more effectively than donald trump so i, I don't know i don't know when it comes to who is more destructive for the country between DeSantis and, and Trump. I think they're both terrible. Either way, you, you know, you can't expect GOP voters to uh, opt for someone who's normal. They're going to choose someone who is fascistic, who's authoritarian, and the alternative uh, to the fascists in the Republican Party is some sort of a psychopathic warmonger like Liz Cheney. So either way, they're gonna pick someone who is horrible. What matters for me is that the Democratic Party get their shit together and come up with somebody who could counter Ron DeSantis uh, or Donald Trump. But if nothing changes and it's DeSantis versus Biden, I think it's a foregone conclusion that DeSantis would win, assuming he's able to maintain this momentum and become the leader of the Republican Party. But when it comes to Donald Trump, I still think that he could beat Joe Biden. But is Trump weaker against Joe Biden? Yes, I think that's undeniable at this point. So, you know, either way, it's interesting to see this dynamic change. But really, Ron DeSantis is the same shitty politician, just in a new package. And that's kind of what GOP voters want right now. So, you know, this is really interesting. One element of the story that I enjoy is just knowing how angered and triggered Donald Trump is that DeSantis is cucking him. There was a story, and I think Vanity Fair, that talked about how Trump was so outraged by Ron DeSantis growing in popularity that he considered announcing his 2024 presidential run in front of DeSantis's house. So talk about petty. That goes to show you how threatened Trump is by Ron DeSantis. So either way, this is an interesting 
thing to watch when it comes to the horse race element of this, but just in terms of the effect that it'll have on democracy, either one of these two lunatics is going to be a disaster for democracy, but um, that's the state of American politics, so um, we'll have to wait and see what happens. I don't think that Ron DeSantis is a foregone conclusion yet, but I do believe that the wind is blowing in that direction, and anyone who denies his momentum within the GOP at this point is in denial. Trump is losing ground, and this is really the first instance where I think that that is tangible. You could palpably feel the way that Trump is losing his grip on the Republican Party. And even if I hate DeSantis, I still love to see Trump lose his power within the GOP. Today, the House of Representatives passed a bill codifying the right to contraception. This comes after Justice Clarence Thomas, in his concurring opinion in Dobbs, cited interest in overturning the precedent established in Griswold, which claimed that there was a constitutional right to contraception. Now, I love these votes because it is forcing Republicans to demonstrate to the entire country how extreme they are. Now, I'll give them credit where it's due. I was actually pleasantly surprised when 47 Republicans yesterday voted to codify the right to same-sex marriages. Now, sure, it is the case that the overwhelming majority of the Republican Party voted against same-sex marriages, but still 47, even though it's 2022, that's pretty surprising to me. So good on those 47 Republicans for doing the bare minimum. But when it comes to contraception, not much has changed for Republicans, apparently. So this is the tally here. This was a vote on whether or not to advance the Right to Contraception Act. And as you can see, the overwhelming majority of Republicans voted to send this legislation back to committee, meaning that they were against it. They were against the Right to Contraception. In 2022, 190 Republicans voted against the right to contraception. I think that most people watching this weren't alive when contraception was a controversial issue. Most people my age don't view this as controversial at all. It doesn't matter what your political affiliation is. I can only recall my mom talking about like how when she was younger and she needed birth control, that was controversial, and church officials and her parents gave her shit. But nobody who is my age, can recall a time when, among our peers, we were debating this issue because it's just not controversial. But to Republicans in 2022, the right to contraception is apparently a no-go. Now, here's what was so controversial about this bill. As HuffPost reports, the Right to Contraception Act introduced by Representative Kathy Manning codifies the right to birth control into federal law by creating a statutory right for people to obtain and use contraceptives, as well as codifying protections for physicians who provide contraceptives. The bill protects a range of contraceptives approved by the Food and Drug Administration and defines contraception as any action taken to prevent pregnancy, including the use of contraceptives or fertility awareness based methods and sterilization procedures. The bill authorizes the Department of Justice to take civil action against any federal or state official who attempts to restrict birth control access, and it allows those affected to also take civil action against anyone who attempts to enforce any restriction on contraception. But still, 190 Republicans said no to that. More of them came out in favor of same-sex marriages. So this is... Really, uh, I don't know what the right word is for it. It's not necessarily surprising. It's just really stupid. Like, I'm glad that 
47 Republicans came out in favor of marriage equality, but I would have expected more to come out in favor of contraception, especially considering so many of them are against abortion, because the number one way to stop abortions is to provide people with access to contraception. When you expand access to contraception, you reduce the need for abortion, but here we are. Now, I've got to say, we talked about same-sex marriage yesterday and how Republicans are really apprehensive about vocalizing their position on this because times have changed. 71% of Americans now agree that same-sex marriage should be the law of the land, and that includes a majority of Republicans. But now, so-called moderate GOP senators like Mitt Romney and so-called populist GOP senators like Josh Hawley are forced to show their true colors. They have to tell their entire base we don't support this really popular thing that you want. Now, they could just do what their base wants, but at the same time, they have to walk this fine line between appeasing extremists within their party and appeasing what most Republicans who are just normie Republicans, rank-and-file GOP voters want, which is marriage equality, which is access to contraception. So they're in this really awkward position where now they have to put their names on something. And it's not just same-sex marriage and contraception. The GOP in the Senate is going to be forced to show their cards on the issue of marijuana legalization as well, because that too is coming up for a vote. And as I stated yesterday, they are not happy that they are forced to take positions, public positions on these things. And it's creating this situation where they're doing this tap dance, where they're pretending to not know about it or haven't read it. They're trying to come up with some focus group tested way to appease everyone, but there's really no getting around it. If you are against same-sex marriage, contraception, cannabis legalization, you're against what the majority of Americans want. But here we are. So I think that this Politico headline put it best. The GOP freezes up on same-sex marriage. Senate Democrats won't have assurances of the 10 Republican votes they need to break a filibuster on the issue. They're moving ahead anyway. So in other words, oh, you don't want to take a stand on this? Too bad. And they're squirming right now, and you love to see it. So let's get into the article. As Politico explains, Mitt Romney doesn't think it's necessary. Richard Burr hasn't read it, and Todd Young is fixated on microchips, okay? Those are some of the answers Republicans gave Wednesday on whether they'd back legislation writing same-sex marriage into law. I'm keeping a very open mind, said Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa, one of many Republicans who said Wednesday they are either undecided or haven't looked at the bill that would enshrine the Supreme Court's Obergefell v. Hodges decision as law. She added, I have a good number of very close friends that are same-sex married. Senators like Burr, Romney, Ernst, and Young aren't giving hard no's by any means, but they aren't racing to provide the 10 ironclad commitments Democrats would need to make same-sex marriage a law either. Even retiring senators were keeping their views to themselves about the four-page bill. Burr merely said, I haven't looked at the legislation. Is that too much to ask for? I'm aware of this bill. I haven't looked at it, said Pat Toomey, who many Democrats think is open to voting for same-sex marriage and backed a non-discrimination bill in 2013. But other than a handful of hard no's from the likes of Senators John Cornyn and Lindsey Graham, most Republicans refused to tip their hands. Senator Chuck Grassley said he's waiting for his staff to review the legislation. Senator Ron Johnson said he needed to review it, and Senator Mike Braun said he's not committing on it yet. I'm sorry, but are we still pretending that Lindsey Graham is a heterosexual male? Does anyone think this? I mean, you can, you can drop the charade, Lindsey Graham. We know that you are um, probably a six on the Kinsey scale, so stop pretending. But um, no, his response to this was, well, I support the Defense of Marriage Act, which was the 1996 law uh, that was signed by Bill Clinton that banned marriages at the federal level. So even if a state 
were to legalize marriage equality like Massachusetts did before the federal government had, well, the marriage wouldn't be recognized federally. So that's what Lindsey Graham is saying he supports. Lindsey, you're gay. Stop pretending. I don't know if that's politically incorrect to say, but we all know it. Sorry, we're all thinking it. You're gay. You're not fooling anyone. Stop pretending. Now, I love Joni Ernst's comment here because she's keeping an open mind, but yet she knows people in same-sex marriages. Okay, so even though you know them and they're lovely people and you're friends with them, you're still like, well, I don't know if they should have the same right that I have. I mean, I, I love this so much because even if they express their open-mindedness to voting in favor of uh, legalizing marriage equality, they still are showing how out of touch and tone deaf they are. Now, in a follow-up to what we learned yesterday about Marco Rubio saying it's a stupid waste of time, turns out he was actually confronted by one of his colleagues who happens to be gay. As CNN's Manu Raju explains, as he was walking on an elevator yesterday, GOP Senator Marco Rubio told me that a vote on a bill to codify gay marriage was a stupid waste of time. But when he said that, there was another senator on the elevator who heard him, Tammy Baldwin, who is gay. Quote, you probably would have loved to be on the elevator to see the exchange after, Baldwin told me today. Adding, of course I did speak to him about the remark. I said that the recent Supreme Court decision eroded a constitutional right to privacy. She said she told him there's a whole bunch of cases that have been decided based on a constitutional right to privacy that are in jeopardy, which she disagrees with. And anyways, I said we'll be talking some more. Baldwin would not say if she was offended by his remark. We're not going to get into that, Baldwin said. I'm counting votes. She predicted there would be 10 GOP votes to break the filibuster. Yeah, well, I'm not so optimistic. Now, at this point in time, there's only only four GOP senators who have committed to supporting same-sex marriage. That includes Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Rob Portman, and Tom Tillis. Now, the no's include Bill Cassidy, John Cornyn, Ted Cruz, Lindsey Graham, Josh Hawley, Jim Inhofe, Marco Rubio, and Roger Wicker. Now, when it comes to the undecided for so-called moderates desperately avoiding questions about this, that includes Rand Paul, a so-called libertarian. Hilarious that this is so difficult for him. Uh, Mitt Romney, who, of course, is not going to support this. He's a Mormon. Mormons are some of the most disgustingly homophobic people in the country, so not a surprise there. Mitch McConnell, Rick Scott, Pat Toomey, among others. So I said it yesterday, but I think it's worth restating. Uh, I think that Democrats should force every single Republican to go on the record on a number of really popular issues. This is the way that you expose them for the extremists that they are. I mean, 190 House Republicans said, we don't believe Americans should have the right to contraception. That is extreme. That's an antiquated view that most of them have that I didn't even expect them to have. I thought that most Republicans would be in favor of this, even if they're personally against it, but just for optic, optics sake. But no, most Republicans, the overwhelming majority of House Republicans are against the right to contraception. Now, we'll see where they fall on issues in the Senate, but um, you can see they really feel uncomfortable vocalizing their views on this issue. Good. Make them uncomfortable, make them vote on everything where they are going to be forced to tell their base they don't support something that they strongly believe in. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. 
You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.